And welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Our guest this episode is Norman Solomon. He's a co-founder of RootsAction.org, and he's also executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy and the author of a number of books, including War Made Easy and Made Love Got War. His most recent book is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. His op-eds have appeared in a range of newspapers, including The New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and he's a recipient of the George Orwell Award presented by the National Council of Teachers of English for Distinguished Contribution to Honesty and Clarity in Public Language. And we welcome your questions and comments to this episode, and I welcome Norman Solomon to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Good to see you. Hey, thanks a lot, Michael. Uh, I should mention, first of all, congratulations for the Orwell Award as a teacher, longtime teacher of English language and literature, and a longtime admirer, to put it mildly, of George Orwell's uh, teacher of politics in the English language, which uh, we could spend a whole hour just talking about by itself. But I learned a lot from Orwell, and I've learned a lot from you in this book, uh, and you've become kind of a expert on war, and this has been called an important book, an eloquent moral call for counting war's true costs, and I think that's a very good description. Uh, let's start off just by talking about numbers, and you can't really get your head around this adequately, because we're talking about real human beings, and in so many cases, civilians and children, especially when you factor in uh, those children who died as a result of sanctions and uh, died not only because of the fog of war one way or another. What civilian deaths add up to, just in terms of numbers, and you cite the study that came out of Brown University in your book, is actually close to a million people, human beings. It's really a challenge to, on the one hand, see the numbers, and then also try to comprehend you know, intellectually and emotionally that they were real people. And none of us are really numbers, certainly we wouldn't like to be reduced uh, to a digit. And so in this case, depending on how you do the categories, the Brown University Cost of War Project is pretty meticulously, and I think, if anything, conservatively calculated that in the post 9-11 wars that the U.S. has led, we are close to about one million people who have died directly uh, because of those wars, and about 400,000 of them being civilians. A more recent study has come out from them since my book was published, and they also calculate the indirect deaths. And when you add up in both categories, including those indirect deaths, they came up with four and a half million people. So uh, it's pretty hard to fathom, to put it mildly. Staggering, unfathomable, really, uh, in, in every sense of that word. But we're not talking uh, about, um, well, where do we divide between post-9-11 and before 9-11? Because that's the real question in my mind, um, especially where these numbers are concerned. We've certainly, since 9-11 and the war on terror, as you point out in your book, a war which seemed perpetual, and I want to get into the possibility that maybe we've come to a kind of stopgap, but uh, be that as it may, there were interventions that went on long before 9-11. Uh, I mean, interventions that you tell us about, Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Grenada, Panama, I mean, the list just goes on. Four continents. I think what we've seen in the last oh, 22 years now since the U.S. Uh, invasion of Afghanistan in October 2001 is an intensification of a pattern. 
And when we look at the staggering figures and the best that I've seen really for the deaths from the Vietnam War, about 3.6 million Vietnamese died as a result of the U.S. intervention. Uh, and then, though, there was what uh, the first President Bush derisively later on called the Vietnam Syndrome, which you know, we might call a rational uh, belated response from the U.S. public, there was an aversion uh, to the intervention. And uh, even though there were other ways to intervene, not militarily, such as the Carter administration's role in East Timor, sending weapons to uh, the Indonesians to slaughter people there, or uh, nefarious really alliances in, say, El Salvador, really that didn't pick up, as you refer to Grenada, Panama in the 1980s, as hate to say it, those are considered small, even though to the people uh, enduring the interventions like the uh, U.S. invasion of Panama in 1989 under the first President Bush, uh, not small of them, but relatively speaking, those were, those were easy pickings, you know, and people like Colin Powell in leadership in uh, the uh, first Bush administration, they, they were sort of touted how brilliant they were to crush Manuel Noriega, you know, lightning strike and all that. But uh, really, the 1990s were a gear up. I mean, the Gulf War, how do you kill, according to the Pentagon, 100,000 people in six weeks, 100,000 Iraqis? That was a glorification uh, in response from the U.S. public. I note in the book that uh, the first Bush, Herbert Walker, he was having a lot of trouble in the polls. And then when there was this... Uh, glorious, what was in some context notoriously called Turkey shoot of retreating Iraqi soldiers from um, Kuwait, his Gallup poll number went up to 91%. Now, it faded pretty quickly, and he lost, obviously, re-election, but that was sort of a, a Rubicon to cross, you might say. And um, Clinton was in 1999... Uh, really lauded in the mass media for um, the uh, bombing campaign that the U.S. led, uh, NATO, and a uh, complicated situation. But the net effect, uh, for one thing, is that um, the U.S. didn't lose one, not one person, in the bombing of Kosovo and Yugoslavia. And that was heralded as a great success. And, you know, I note in the book, cluster bombs were used by NATO, um, I read, uh, God help me, the, the uh, Clinton memoir, Bill Clinton's memoir, and uh, he just says uh, it was just a glorious event. He doesn't mention uh, the, the carnage of, of civilians. I, I, I mention all that, Michael, because that was sort of, in retrospect, a gear up. And so in 99, we got this uh, Yugoslavia bombing. And then after 9-11, just the military floodgates opened. Oh, you mentioned Bush too in the Gulf War. After that, we were told we kicked the Vietnam syndrome, right? Yes, exactly. It was a, it was a speech to uh, the, the ALEC group uh, that has since then, since 1991, just had a devastating effect with uh, sort of cookie cutter right-wing legislation to various legisla uh, state legislatures. But yeah, he said, you know, by God, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. Certainly that was the hope. 
Well, one of the press even more disturbing things that you bring out in your book is what you describe as the integral and well complicity really of the fourth estate. That is the media support for what was going on. A good example you use is with Rumsfeld and Afghan civilians, and yet there are many, many examples of this. I mean, go back to Noam Chomsky and realize to what extent the media has been complicit. But with the war on terror specifically, let's just talk about the culpability of the media as you see it. The fawning and the adulation uh, was from the get-go for understandable but also very dangerous uh, dynamics really propelling the U.S. so-called war on terror. And I note in the book that uh, a few weeks after 9-11, in early October, when the U.S. launched the uh, attack on Afghanistan, Gallup found that only 5% of the U.S. public was opposed. Well, that's like, uh, those are Soviet-type numbers of a... uh, a blanketly effective propaganda system by any other name, when one out of 20 people uh, only oppose uh, attacking and invading a country that um, had nothing to do with 9-11 other than Osama bin Laden being there. 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. Um, Of course, Saudi Arabia was an ally. Yeah, but the Taliban uh, did give sanctuary to al-Qaeda, and they were certainly complicitous. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were some indications that the uh, Taliban was willing to negotiate. But uh, that said, um, I think it's fair to say that a pattern was established after 9-11 with the attack on Afghanistan of collective punishment of the innocent, because there were tens and tens of thousands, and that may be ultimately an underestimate, of people in Afghanistan just as innocent as those at the World Trade Center who were killed as a result of the U.S. action. And this sort of gets back to those numbers that inadequately represent human beings. 3,000 innocent souls murdered on 9-11. And then we look at the direct deaths from the post 9-11 US wars of civilians, 400,000. So in retrospect, what happened is that for every innocent person killed on 9-11, the United States government directly caused the deaths of more than 100. And that's just the direct deaths. That should give us real pause, to put it mildly. And yet these kind of questions are virtually absent from U.S. corporate mass media, and I have to say, including programs like All Things Considered, Morning Edition, PBS NewsHour, they're banished, they're off the table, they're, uh, we don't have government censorship, but it's a psychological internalized censorship that essentially has what I would call two tiers of grief, those who matter and those who don't. And I believe this is, and this is a theme of the book, really, ultimately, that this is a very, whether you want to call it morally or spiritually corrosive reality of U.S. media and society and governance, which is that tacitly, without being in any way explicit, and in the most insidious way, because it's assumed, it's the background noise, it's the wallpaper, it's the 
water through us, through which us fish swim, we have internalized and accepted automatically that some people who die in war really, really matter. And some other people, their suffering, their the grief of their loved ones, they're non-persons. They essentially don't matter at all. It's also a notion of collateral damage, isn't it? Yes, very much. Uh, I quote in the um, book a statement that appeared in Time magazine uh, back in 1991, the time of the Gulf War. They defined, quote, collateral damage as people who should have chosen a safer neighborhood. That was the wording of Time magazine. You just think about all those Afghan civilians who were spotted from above, and I want to talk about how wars have moved into technology and the aerial nature of war now, but who were looking at wedding parties and deciding that that was somehow uh, an insurgency or some kind of a Taliban uh, or Al-Qaeda meetings. There's a question right away from one of our regular uh, listeners, viewers, uh, Reed, who says, I'm sure, he says, Professor Solomon, Norm Solomon's not a professor, but that's okay. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, has strong feelings about the war in Ukraine, and I'd like to hear them. Um, you've compared in your book the violation of sovereignty in Ukraine to the United States' violation of sovereignty in Iraq, and there are other analogies or parallels that you make that are worth certainly thinking about. But there's just as much destruction of innocent life in Ukraine by Putin as certainly, I mean, I don't know the, what the numbers are, and I, I hate to think of numbers because human suffering doesn't translate, in my mind, to a matter of numbers. I get staggered by the human waste and cost of lives. But he's hitting children, he's hitting civilians, he's hitting you know everybody he can. Uh, and, f you know, why? Uh, remains a question. Uh, I know there are arguments on that side that say that, you know, NATO has boxed him into a corner and Ukraine has threatened him and he feels menaced by Ukraine. He thinks there's Nazis there. I, I don't know that this holds up in my mind, frankly, any of this holds up. He's slaughtering people, just like you make the argument that we slaughtered people, innocent people. We as a country, as a world, desperately need a single standard of human rights, a single standard of international conduct, and what countries do. And whether it's the U.S. invading and slaughtering people in Iraq or Russia invading and slaughtering people in Ukraine, we really need and I think must insist that we have a single standard we were talking initially a bit about Orwell, and it's staggeringly Orwellian to hear the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and President Biden speak in the context of the Ukraine war about how, in what they call a rules-based order, which is sort of like we, we make the rules, we break the rules in, in practice, that uh, it's absolutely unacceptable for one country to invade another. I completely agree with that, of course. Um, and Antony Blinken was the chief of staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when Biden wielded the gavel in the middle of 2002. And it was essentially a sham hearing to green light the invasion of Iraq. He didn't allow anti-invasion uh, experts to testify. So what I 
try to emphasize when I am asked about this is that the hypocrisy in Washington in no way justifies these war crimes that are ongoing by Russia and Ukraine. And by the same token, the war crimes that are ongoing in Ukraine because of Russia's conduct in no way justifies the United States' past war crimes or the present so-called war on terror, which largely invisible to the U.S. public, continues in many countries to the detriment of so many people. This ideal that you talk about, and I think of it as an ideal of having universal human rights requirements against invasions and so forth, um, where do you put teeth in that? I mean, that's been the problem with the League of Nations, with the United Nations, with any body or any attempt uh, under treaties to essentially curb this kind of behavior. Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, Putin invades Russia, we invade Afghanistan, or, you know, from our rhetoric, it wasn't an invasion, it was striking back at the Taliban and all of that. Uh, we can perhaps get into that in more depth, but you understand what I'm getting at here. Where's sure. the, where the, where's the uh, enforcement on this and the teeth behind it? Well, I think part of the uh, challenge and the problem and the opportunity uh, is to get beyond uh, U.S. foreign policy that is, in effect, do as we say, not as we do. And a lot of historians, and I think uh, convincingly, say that a sort of a breaking point was the U.S. Uh, war, the bombing uh, campaign the U.S. led on Yugoslavia in 1999. There were political and cultural ties between Russia uh, and Serbs. And for the Russian government, which was in the, in the throes of the last part of uh, Boris Yeltsin at that point, it was really offensive that the U.S. could just, no pun on the word offensive, um, really offensive that the United States would just say, okay, we want to lead a bombing of Yugoslavia. And that's not a full answer, but I think that's part of it because what has been normalized is the conduct of big powers uh, that, hey, we're going to do this and we can get away with it. And certainly one of the insidious uh, repercussions of the so-called war on terror, which included well-documented, even a few days ago, it was the CIA acknowledged the torturing people. But normalized torture was it really took any teeth out of the U.S. preaching or condemning against the torture of many uh by many other governments. As a matter of fact, the U.S. collaborated with their so-called black sites to ship people that they didn't want to be torturing on U.S. soil uh, to uh, allied countries to do the torturing for the U.S. That's part of it. I think also strengthening the U.N. is crucial, but when you have a Security Council where either Russia or the U.S. can veto and do when their allies are being called on the carpet, it's a structural as well as example um, shortcoming that is, I think, profound. Question uh, from one of our listeners up in Nevada who says, is there a time when military action is acceptable? The U.S. did not take action while nearly a, one million Rwandans died in 1994. Are there situations where the U.S. should act? It's a tough question, and certainly I am, I'm not a quote-unquote pacifist, but I think that there is a should be extremely high threshold before engaging in warfare. Um, I had a very moving uh, conversation with a former Sandinista leader uh, who was big in the uh, Nicaraguan government 
during the Contra War. And I said, well, you know, I, I really uh, think war should truly, truly, not just rhetorically, be a last resort. And uh, one of the only wars, I mean, I was too early for the Spanish uh, Civil War, <laughs> but I said, one of the only wars that I could imagine myself picking up a, a gun for uh, is the war against the Contras uh, in Nicaragua in the 1980s, the Contra terrorists. And he looked at me for a long moment and he said, well, as time went on, one side started to resemble the other more and more in the war. And it got me to thinking about Tokyo and Dresden. It got me to thinking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It doesn't conflate the Nazis and the U.S., but it does say that once you get into um, glorifying war and when you roll back the tape, you can see how these wars could have been prevented and the atrocities that were ostensibly being challenged by the invasion, they could have been prevented earlier on if diplomacy and human rights were at the forefront of foreign policy. So Rwanda is an example. I'm not saying it would have been easy, but I think attention to human rights rigorously, consistently, would be um, a break against these horrific events that happen either before war or during war. And I would con connect this, Michael, in a sense, to what's happened in Yemen in the last eight years. Because according to the UN, close to 400,000 people have died in the Saudi-led and basically U.S.-backed war on Yemen, the largest cholera epidemic in modern human history has occurred during that time uh, in Yemen. It's the worst and humanitarian yet, crisis in recent history. By yeah, far. just stunning. And uh, many of those people, of course, uh, children who, who've died. And the capacity that President Obama had to prevent that from even starting uh, was just was stunning. And we know historically that uh, it was a wink and a nod from the White House because they didn't want Saudis to freak out too much about the impending Iran nuclear deal, which was actually a very good deal. It's obviously, these are really sad historical narratives. Yeah, I think it's important to point out the Saudis also had a lot of blood on their hands with respect to Yemen. And oh, absolutely. And the United States has shipped billions of dollars of arms sales uh, throughout the Saudi war on Yemen. We've had three presidents, whether it's Obama, Trump, or Biden, who participated in that slaughter. And I think about that in the context of, for instance, when I drive to work, I pass a couple of Ukrainian flags. And I think that solidarity with people in Ukraine is completely appropriate. I haven't seen a single Yemeni flag. And I think you could drive around your own neighborhood, you're not gonna see any Yemeni flags. And we might say, hmm, why isn't that, why, why aren't the people who've been suffering and dying and mourning their loved ones just as worthy of our at least symbolic empathy? And that goes back to the tears of grief. Our news media, our corporate news media in the US have signaled to us quite appropriately uh, through the coverage, the empathetic reporting, that those are human beings suffering atrocities in Ukraine. Very little coverage, if at all, in major U.S. media about uh, the suffering in Yemen, not only in spite of 
the U.S. role, but arguably because of it. There was also some pretty serious coverage of the suffering in Bosnia, especially of Muslims uh, that were being slaughtered. And many people felt that our going into that conflict was a humanitarian role for the United States, and that the United States took the, took the high road. It's, it's possible. You know, I don't deal with Bosnia in the book, and uh, I pretty much focus on the post-9-11 wars, you know, the ones in this century. Um, I, I was just think thinking, though, about that general question that was raised about Rwanda and should we have gone in? And certainly many of, I think Bill Clinton, you mentioned his book, said that was maybe a mistake, a serious mistake. Madeleine Albright, yeah, yeah. who well, later apologized for saying that children... It was worthwhile killing the children died. She actually made that statement to me in an interview we did uh, that she felt terribly regretful that she had made that statement. Well, uh, I to, both those points. First, if we would rewind the tape, if we had a really rigorous single standard about human rights, it's possible that the slaughter in Rwanda could have been mitigated. We, we don't know. It's with counterfactual. Um, Madeleine Albright, I think it's fascinating, and it's a somewhat, not entirely, but um, really exhumed history. When she went on, this is Madeleine Albright under the Clinton administration, went on 60 Minutes, interviewed by Leslie Stahl in 1996. And Stahl said it is information that half a million children in Iraq have died because of U.S. sanctions. And the response from Madeleine Albright was, uh, this is really difficult, but we think it's worth it. And that was very maladroit, to put it mildly. <laughs> and no doubt she later regretted her candor. But in fact, the Clinton administration, and she as a spokesperson for it at the United Nations, she did think it was worth it. You know, so why are we on such a, uh, Uncle Sam's writing such a, uh, high horse uh, moral ground. And the kicker, which I talk about in the book, which is in its own way, um, perhaps uh, equally or somewhat as infuriating, was just a few months after Albright made that statement on 60 Minutes, Clinton nominated her to become Secretary of State. And the U.S. Senate approved her 99 to 0 there wasn't one senator troubled enough by that statement and that policy that she led uh, to actually vote against her. And I would just add that if she had said that the deaths of any of those senators' children had been worth it, maybe there would have been a no vote. That was very revelatory indeed. Got some questions I want to go to. Uh... Simon is joining us from Berlin, and he wants to know, considering your exploration of the media's role in political discourse, how can individuals and societies encourage media outlets to prioritize truth and objectivity over sensationalism and bias? I'm really in favor of people, as the former FCC commissioner Nicholas Johnson said long ago, talking back to their TV set or their other media that's what the First Amendment or anything analogous in any other country than the U.S. should include, that rather than trying to interfere with the First Amendment of media outlets, by challenging them, we widen and deepen the realities of the First Amendment 
I'm a big supporter and have been involved with the Media Watch Group FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, which people can visit at fair.org. There are action alerts that about 100,000 people have signed up for and get really well-researched and then to publicly challenge and push mainstream or any media to uh, deal with inaccuracies, to imbalances that are extreme, to serving as stenographers for the powerful, for governments, as Michael, you were alluding to earlier, how media in terms of the U.S. have so often just been handmaidens and supporters reflexively of U.S. war propaganda from the Gulf of Tonkin and the Vietnam War to many other issues like weapons of mass destruction. So we have this opportunity to do the research, to draw another research, to challenge the mainstream corporate media and also to build independent outlets. And dare I say it, including gray matter, I mean, there is a really possible profusion that is underway that could be much more uh, widespread of independent media. And so I, I see it as walking on two legs. Let's challenge the uh, entrenched media and also build some authentic alternatives. Question from Elena in Denver, and thank you for the question, Elena. Mr. Solomon, could you elaborate on how the rise of user-generated content and citizen journalism might be affecting the quality and reliability of information available to the public? Well, I, without being, I hope, too cynical, I um, routinely am uh, very skeptical to the idea, to the point of rolling my eyes when I hear about the good old days, when you know there was Walter Cronkite who we could trust, there were really there's really quality journalism, and you go back to, for instance, the Vietnam War and uh, the major media outlets at the time, uh, which were very circumscribed in quantity, and um, perhaps we would say in outlook, they were uh, very much leading us down the garden path to to one war after another. They reproduced and amplified the lies coming from. The U.S. government to get us into the Vietnam War, the Iraq invasion, and on and on. And I think, frankly, it's been a mixed bag. I mean, citizen journalism sort of a, a buzz phrase. It's hard to know what it exactly might entail. But I think widening the gates for a lot more people to be heard is important. However, money still talks incredibly loudly in um, the internet space and we'll find with really few exceptions that the dominant uh, media outlets that are so diffuse now, they're largely driven by big money behind them. The so-called legacy outlets are um, often very dominant on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the web. So you know, I'm all for let's let a lot of different flowers bloom, but not romanticize it because on the one hand, a lot of it is driven by big money and big investors. And also we're seeing a lot of bigotry, a lot of racism, nativism, um, misogyny, uh, that I suppose we can't exactly blame uh, social media for, but it's bringing to the fore what has existed in our society and uh, whipped up by neo-fascists like Donald Trump has been... Um, pseudo-legitimized uh, in a very dangerous set of ways. Yeah, it's brought out a lot from under rocks that uh, had been there, but now is out in the open, I'm afraid, and yes. also contagious. Uh, but when we talk about money, we have to talk about the fact that uh, 
The Pentagon had a budget of about six, $768 billion last year, as you point out. That's billion with a B. And the weapon profits in the military have to be factored in. The, the, the notion of making certain that budgets get validated and approved, and now we're going through this struggle, in fact, where things may actually shut down and possibility of a shutdown means the military won't get paychecks. But even just the freelancing that goes on in terms of weapons and so forth is, again, a staggering amount of money. So when we talk about the idealism of things like citizen journalism and people making a difference and setting up, it's overwhelming. Uh, it's overwhelming just to think about what's adversarial to those kind of impulses and that kind of idealism. I'm sorry to. You said you don't yeah, want to sound cynical. I'm sounding cynical, and I don't mean to do that because, you know, I, I feel hopeful where people are concerned. Often, uh, that hope is not necessarily uh, affirmed, but in many instances, it is. So, let me get to the heart of something now. You really take on the war on terror. Biden has seen to it, and a lot of people criticized him for this profound criticism that we've pulled out of Afghanistan. Afghanistan right now is under Taliban rule once again. The real question in my mind is, how much is the war on terror going up ahead? Even Trump, I say even Trump because I think you call him a neo-fascist and I wouldn't argue with that. But Trump has said, we don't have to fight all these wars. I mean, you know, he'll support Putin probably with Ukraine. Or, uh, and in terms of invasion, there may be one up ahead from China and Taiwan. But Trump, uh, we talked to Geraldo Rivera in our last uh, podcast, and he said Trump, who he claimed was his friend, had stabbed the Constitution and incited this insurrection and said the, the election was won when it wasn't. All that domestically notwithstanding, Trump didn't foment any wars, really. I mean, he may have continued Afghanistan under his administration, but now we got Mark Milley, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Trump saying he should have been executed or he would have been executed years ago. And Mark Milley uh, has to have guards and security because of Donald Trump. I mean, things have reached kind of a different point now, haven't they? Very much. And, you know, we could uh, make a case, I think, that the reflexive support for one theater of war intervention after another since 2001 really set the stage or helped the ascension of this um, fascistic uh, so-called leader, Donald Trump. I cite in the book a study done in the aftermath of the 2016 election that found that a lot of working class communities in the swing states that surprisingly Trump won against Hillary Clinton were places where the people who really bore the brunt of repeated deployments of the uh, the injuries, uh, the physical and PTSD, they were sick of these wars by uh, 2016. Uh, these wars were still the darling of the, um, the punditocracy in Washington, of those uh, in Congress for the most part. Uh, for So excuse me, Norm, maybe we have reached the tipping point? Well, um, I mean... Trump's like a broken clock, so he's right once in a while, but even then, his the hands on the clock or the digital numbers are spinning as he speaks. In the same speech, he can call Democrats warmongers and wimps because they don't intervene enough. So the guy, you know, I, I don't have any uh, 
uh, clinical um, training, so I I can't diagnose. But um, he's really unhinged. So there's it's no. It's been done. The diagnosis was done by some psychiatrists uh, under Brandy Lee, uh, who said essentially that there needs to be a new clinical definition for Donald Trump. They called it. Uh, Malignant solipsism. Yeah. Not malignant narcissism, but malignant solipsism, because solipsism believes there's no other reality than my reality, the subjective reality. Yes, yeah. their diagnosis. So it's 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 all about him and he is shrewd, you know, at a lot of levels. He's not uh anything but uh smart, quote unquote, astute, uh in the service of that solipsism. And so he goes for the opening. And as he is doing now, again, uh, saying that we shouldn't have all these wars and everything. Well, that's um, the broken clock syndrome. And I think we just need to separate that out and look at what we think is the best future of the country. I do think that is a profound dynamic that uh, while they may have been uh, buoyed by idealism after 9-11 and many of the people who had family members or who themselves went to Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. First, maybe they were into it, but not anymore. You know, this this is uh, no longer inspiring to very many people. And that has huge political consequences. And I fear that um, despite what I think was a good decision to withdraw from Afghanistan at long last, there's still uh, this tremendous military budget there's a tremendous amount of money being spent, almost $900 billion with a B dollars for the Pentagon every year. And um, this is going to be exploited and uh, utilized by the right wing. And for the wrong reasons, for their opportunistic reasons, they have a point. Question from Aria in Chicago, Illinois. With the rapid advancement in digital media technologies, do you foresee any emerging trends or challenges in maintaining journalistic integrity and battling misinformation? That's a great question. It's ironic that the capacity technologically to really cover wars around the world and convey as much as possible through any technical means what it's like to be in a war, which is really limited. It's nothing like actually being in one. But the technical ability in real time from almost any spot on the globe to bring that to people back to the United States or anywhere else, it's uh, stunning. And yet it's used so selectively. I think there's been enormous propaganda from the U.S. and U.S. media in the lead up and during the war in Ukraine. But when you set aside the political spin, the geopolitical um, jingo narcissism that has been so much in U.S. media about it, and you simply focus on the coverage in Ukraine, the suffering that people have experienced, I think it's been great journalism. It's been an example of what can be done when there's an intent and utilizing available technology as well to really convey to people as much as possible the suffering that is a result of war. If only that had been provided during and after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, if only that had been provided as the U.S. aided the Saudi-led slaughter in Yemen. And that's where you know, I think we keep coming, or I keep coming back to the ideological and nationalistic window on the world that's tendered red, white, and blue to the point where 
Some people matter and some people don't. I think that is a formula for um, a degraded uh, psychological and social environment in the United States. A long story short, I, after working on the book, I really felt that there's a, an essentially um, core corruption of the United States discussion of, perception of, media depiction of war around the world. We are, um, we are driven by a two-tier notion of what it means to be a human being. You people make it abundantly clear in your don't. book that TV was constrained and, and to a great degree, but yet people would complain, especially during Vietnam, that you saw warfare on television and the news constantly. It was ubiquitous. It was pervasive. You got all those arguments that were coming forward at that time. And yet the argument that you present is they were under kind of straitjacketing. They were constrained all the time. You tell a story, by the way, about Dan Rather, which is pretty revelatory. And I have respect and affection for Dan Rather, I should say, up front. But congratulating a general and with the kind of hosannas and uh, rejoicing attitude. Yeah, as I remember, um, after the, um, that was the Gulf War, I believe, he said, uh, It was the Gulf pump, War, yeah. Pump the hand of the general. Congratulations on a job well done. This goes back to the Vietnam War. In the, I didn't know this when I wrote my earlier book, War Made Easy, but the producers of the documentary based on the book found footage um, of Walter Cronkite stepping off a, a jet plane uh, that he'd been in over Vietnam and congratulating uh, the uh, colonel uh, who had escorted him. This is a really great way to, to run a war. And this is the kind of cheerleading that blends into the scenery. It's assumed to be uh, What's journalism? And uh, tacitly, but very uh, rigorously, especially in times of U.S. war, the presumption professionally in U.S. mass media is that if you're pro-U.S. war, you're professional and unbiased. If you're against U.S. war, you are are biased. Uh, Let me go to a couple more questions, and then I want to get into talking with you about the changing nature of war, which you write about. Uh, Bill from Los Angeles says, what do you see as a positive, a possible positive and negative impacts of AI on journalism and news? Mm, uh, Let me say a little story. Um, I was at first flattered that my book, War Made Invisible, uh, had these sort of cliff notes, uh, summaries being marketed on Amazon and so forth soon after the book came out. So I I plunked down my $9.99 out of curiosity and ordered one. And it was, I discovered, written by AI. <laughs> and uh, rather than actually having to pay somebody to God forfend, heaven forfend, actually read my book and then write a sort of a Cliff Notes thing, it had been run through some uh, low budget AI thing. And it was uh, it was such a, an atrocity uh, inflicted on the, on the English language. And there were, sentences that made no sense grammatically, let alone conceptually. And um, so I imagine that the Pentagon, which has now set up an entire task force for artificial intelligence, uh, will have the best that money can buy. And in journalism, I mean, already we're seeing in tandem with just continual layoffs from traditional newsrooms. Uh, and a lot of newsrooms have literally folded and people are working out of their homes, which isn't bad necessarily, but symbolically, newsrooms are being mothballed. 
And so I go back to something Herbert Marcuse wrote about. He said, it's not the technology, it's who controls the technology. And I think that's going to be the case with AI. Or who controls the data. Same thing, really. Yeah. Um, there's another question from Colin who wants to know about conspiracy theorists who point to the World Economic Forum, WTO, UN, and other international bodies as an effort to create a one-world government that would eradicate national sovereignty. While that might be more peaceful, how would you respond? The, the bugaboo of one-world government, you know, I was... Um, being warned against uh, during the 1950s and 60s by the John Birch Society, and they thought uh, Eisenhower was part of that. There's a lot of dangers from globalization and sort of refers to what we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago. What does international um, agreement and structures serve? To whose benefit? Who's driving the train? Who gets the revenue? Who gets the control? So I'm not, you know, for or against international cooperation per se, if it's the uh, the invasion of the willing to go kill a lot of people in a country that the U.S. designates uh, as appropriate targets, that's one thing. If it's a uh, WTO that serves basically corporate interests or NAFTA uh, that uh, is making uh, the hemisphere more safe for corporate profits, uh, for a race to the bottom to immiserate for low-income, very, very low-income workers. That's one thing. If it's a strength and genuine UN that actually pays attention to the entire uh, General Assembly and not just a few people on the Security Council, that's where a lot of potential is. And I think going back to the point about Rwanda, if we have a single standard of human rights and conduct, then we have potential because whether it's COVID or the climate emergency or other crucial threats to humanity and opportunities for humanity, this is a circular globe. We're on a sphere together. And as hokey as it might sound, we got seven or eight billion people on this little planet, this little big planet, and we're in this together. Well, you do write about the imperative of telling the truth, the necessity of telling the truth. Uh, but we've become, in so many ways, used to lying and bending of the truth, that it seems as maybe in some ways we're almost inured to that. How do we get back to it, the, the truth as a high standard or as just the bar that we should be reaching for? Was it Orwell who uh, wrote that telling the truth is a subversive act? I think that unfortunately is almost a truism in any society where, as I.F. Stone said, all governments lie, and nothing they say should be believed. Stone wasn't saying all governments lie all the time. I mean, even the crackpot, tyrannical regime of North Korea probably tells the truth once in a while, maybe by mistake or not. But Stone was saying that we should never take what governments say on faith. And there are truths that are simply subversive of existing power structures, which dominate means of communication. And that's certainly true in the United States, there are points uh, that we've been discussing today that are not formally, but virtually, in effect, taboo to talk about. You're not going to hear it on All Things Considered a Morning Edition. It's just not in the range of what's considered to be reasonable discussion. And that's a way of suppressing 
truths that are uncomfortable. You know, sort of the, uh, I think of that title of the Al Gore documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. We got so many inconvenient truths that are way more than inconvenient to what uh, we could call a military industrial media complex. You're just not going to hear about them in mainstream media. It's funny to hear about the military industrial complex. I think first brought to our attention by Dwight David Eisenhower oh, in right. one of his farewell speech uh, became a rallying cry in the 60s. I had said, I wanted to hear your thoughts because you write a good deal about the nature of change to air warfare as opposed to boots on the ground. And in fact, to a great extent, we have, I think, crossed that divide. We are now looking at drones and we're looking at all kinds of aerial technology that can even, to a greater extent, dehumanize. You just press the buttons and things go off and they go off in ways that slaughter and kill and it's depressing. <laughs> That's where we're yeah. at. Though. This is um, the intensification of a quest that has been ongoing for a very long time. Um, I read about in Thailand, there was the largest building in uh, Southeast Asia that the US military operated uh, during the late 1960s and early 70s. And it was within the limits of the te technology of the day, monitoring um, the false uh, little leaves or animal droppings or whatever that had been scattered along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And uh, so whenever they were disturbed by presumably uh, North Vietnamese, uh, troops, the uh, building would send a signal to the B-52s to just drop bombs on them. And that's just an early form. The people who were sitting in that building in Thailand had no contact, visceral contact. You know, we're told, and I don't know how we can verify this, that because the human tendency is not to want to kill other human beings, a lot of times soldiers in a battlefield, they will actually shoot in the air or in the ground because they really don't want to kill the, the so-called enemy. Uh, and in the last few decades, of course, we've gotten to the point of drones. And I've interviewed several drone operators who talked to me about the trauma of them sitting in Nevada, for instance, and looking at pixels that are purportedly representing human beings, and they don't know if really they are adults, they're terrorists, somebody's uh, carrying a hot plate, Maybe it's a child, and they have to decide in a few seconds whether to push the button. It's like a video game almost. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. some of them can be concerned that these are human beings, but some of them can absolutely be devoid of any concern. And it's an abstraction that I think plays across the media terrain. I mean, a lot of the laptop warriors that are cheerleading across the board for U.S. military interventions. When the U.S. is bombing Somalia and our bombing uh, Syria, where we have more than 100 countries today where special operations U.S. forces are uh, located. There's also a zeal to send an endless supply of weapons, billions and billions of dollars with a nonstop flow to Ukraine. And a lot of these laptop warriors are sitting under the hot lights or in their studios or in their homes in Washington or New York. Uh, many of them are famous journalists in the U.S. And they're saying essentially, Go get them. Go get them. Go kill each other. Let's you and them fight. And that is basically what the messaging is. Let's you and them fight. 
well, these are a lot of the same folks who are saying, as is the Biden administration, oh, we can't have a ceasefire. We can't have negotiations. And they're saying, and just, just one other point on this, not to digress, but on the one hand, they're saying uh, Biden, uh, Biden is pointing out, and Biden policy is to recognize that uh, Putin is a madman, and there's no point in negotiating with him. And at the same time, these same folks are saying, oh, don't worry about him feeling he should use nuclear weapons. He's way too rational for that. And there's a disconnect here. I think uh, Putin has used nuclear weaponry as a threat and as a menace and as a club. He's got some faster and more speedy nuclear weapons at his disposal now. And, uh, you know, there's, in fact, in the argument now that mutual assured destruction can be used in the Middle East, it can be used in so many different places because it seemed to ward off a, a war during the Cold War that would be a hot war. Uh, and yet, you know, an accident can happen. So many things can happen that, I mean, you and I talked about nuclear weapons many, many years ago and the dangers of nuclear right. weapons. And uh, it's amazing in some respects that we've lasted this long. And you know what occurs to me, and I'm sorry to bring this up in some ways, maybe I shouldn't even be apologetic about it, but Underlying all this is the notion that, looking at another question from Colin about uh, the only leader of a major nation to disband his army, Ashoka the Great, uh, about 250 BCE, because of the horrors of war, his descendants could not remain pacifists. How might the world raise its collective consciousness to lose its taste for war? Well, we're talking about maybe something that's innate in the DNA and an aggression. I don't know if you want to go into this anthropological or realm that I'm thinking about, but there's always been warfare. There's always been aggression between human beings and violence between human beings. And uh, war is essentially violent conflict. Violent conflict exists on every level in our society and in most societies. Are we dealing with something here that maybe is beyond our reach? Well, I think it's partly out of our reach. Barbara Ehrenreich has a great book called Blood Rights that she published yeah, about 25 book, years yeah. ago, yeah. going through some of that anthropology. And yet she points out that so many people have risked for war. Isn't it time we risk for peace? That this is not a um, fatalistic view. It should be a realistic view of the obstacles involved. And it's not just rhetoric. I think Martin Luther King Jr. said that uh, we have to deal with the reality that if we don't reach much more nonviolence, that the world will be destroyed. And that is a big difference. Now, John Lennon said it this. 75 years, it's not only some people being killed, it's, it's the risk of omnicide. Um, Dan Ellsberg has pointed out numerously, and he pointed out numerous times in the last 50 years of his life, that uh, both uh, nuclear superpowers have, quote, used nuclear weapons in the way that a bandit would use a gun holding up a bank, um, brandishing the weapon. And Ellsberg documented many times when the U.S. threatened to use nuclear weapons, which is uh, what Putin has been essentially doing as well. We just need to build movements and sensibilities that say that's unacceptable. Well, the planet is at risk, I think, in terms of war, uh, to a greater degree than it ever has been. And if a hot war breaks out, which it could, 
there's always the possibility, unfortunately, of nuclear weapons, and that's the reality. Um, like I say, I like to believe in that um, thing with feathers that Emily Dickinson writes about. I like to yeah. feel that there's hope and there's reason for hope for ongoing sense of civilization enduring. But I have my moments, and when I think of, of war, those moments uh, rise up in a visceral way in my interior life. Yeah, um, you know, from Emily Dickinson to uh, Antonio Gramsci, who, in prison under Mussolini, talked about what he called the need for pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. And uh, we certainly have basis for the pessimism and, and the need for the optimism. Well, you also write about, we talked a lot about the media's complicity and how television hasn't uh, gone where it could have and should have and might have. Hollywood, central role in all of this in terms of the glorification of war and really war being necessary and lives being lost as a part of that necessary calculus. Absolutely. You know, Ron Kovic, who wrote uh, the book Born on the Fourth of July, and then that book was made into the, uh, the film of the same name, maybe the only Tom Cruise film I really admire. And he talked about how he was inspired by John Wayne and the Green Beret film. And so Ron volunteered, his Marine, and his ability to walk ended one day with taking a bullet on a battlefield in Vietnam. Of course, Ron is a, a lucky, he, he actually blurred my book, but to the point that uh, Ron has been a fervent anti-war activist for for 50 plus years. In uh, my book, I wrote about the film, The Green Berets, and then compared it to American Sniper, which was a huge grossing film in the last decade. And when the New York Times top critics named the most influential films of this previous decade, they named American Sniper. And I was really struck that basically the storyline was the same. You had a heroic person, John Wayne, or the uh, based on real life sniper in Iraq, in American Sniper. And they're wonderful, they're great, they're heroes. But you've got a skeptic who's a stand-in for all anti-war voices. In the film, uh, The Green Berets, it was a journalist who had sort of shaggy hair, you know, which was emblematic of being, uh, you know, unduly skeptical. And he throws a lot of negative questions at John Wayne, but he's persuaded that the war is really great. And that's the sort of act three of the film. In American Sniper, it's the guy's wife. And at the end, she realizes that the war in Iraq is great. So, yeah, it's like what you're pointing to, Michael, is really a routine dynamic. And sometimes with the Pentagon donating the use of aircraft carriers that would be prohibitive financially if a studio had to do it themselves. Uh, they help it along. They have script approval, by the way, if they're going to let you use their aircraft carrier uh, or their F-16s, they've got to approve the script. Could you also say something, because uh, we're coming toward the end of uh, our conversation, alas, but about the role of religion in all of this, especially, I remember Kilikami for Christ and all those kinds of things, but Religion does play a significant role. Yeah, religion can be used for good and ill. You know, on the plus side, uh, Martin Luther King spoke at Riverside Church, April 4th, 1967, with his eloquent Beyond 
Vietnam speech, and he called for um, a human community globally to to end the scourge of war. Boy, I hope we can uh, take that to heart. Uh, and I don't, when I say we, I mean the human global animal or the human community, if it were, as it were, and act like a community. Norm, it's always good to talk to you. Uh, Norman Solomon's new book, again, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, War Made Invisible. Hold it up here. Everybody can see. And thanks to all of you, by the way, who joined us for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and all who will be hearing the episode on Apple, Spotify, or on our website at graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. We encourage you to become a member of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny by going to graymatter.show. And thanks to our great team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Mickey, and to this episode's special guest, Norman Solomon. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.